Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard, the president of Gospel App Ministries, www.gospel-app.com. We're the creators of the Forgiving Path. If you're having a difficult time forgiving something in your past or, or recently, give it a shot. Or The Dance, if you're struggling with shame or loneliness, isolation, you feel like God doesn't like you anymore, you've, you've uh, messed up your relationship, try the dance. Both are ridiculously low priced, cheapest in a long time, only $29 each. And, and give it a shot. I think you'll be pleased. A satisfaction guaranteed. Each one takes around two hours. Look, what have you got to lose? It's Each one is gospel in a box. Everything we're talking about on the Sermon on the Mount. So give it a shot. Okay? We're at the third... The attitude, it's a, I believe that it's kind of a trinity. The first three really are similar. I'm going to describe that a little bit next time. But blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's the NIV. Let's dig into it. Meek, the Greek is praus. Jesus is definitely doing a head nod to Psalm 37. We'll get to Psalm 37 in a minute. But first, I want to talk about praus. And I'm going to Use an image of a spectrum, zero to ten. Zero would be absolute human prousness, and ten would be the innate DNA of God prousness or divine prousness. And I want to look at human prousness first. And I think we get confused when we look at the the uh, the beatitude. So I think this will help. I hope. Let me know. Bill at gospel-app.com. So the people who came to be with Jesus on that hillside that he drew near, right, Pericaleo, you heard from the last podcast, these weren't people who had learned the careful art of self-importance. These were not the demanding prima donnas of their age, divas or stars or pretentious or arrogant, the right, so-called righteous, you know, meaning in a culture that, that weighed that, that was important. They weren't the, the fat ones in the culture. They weren't influencers or movers or shakers. They're not writing self-help books or speaking at conventions or, you know, telling people how to invest their money or running countries or C-suites. They were the beat up. They were the losers, the outies, the failures, the ravaged, the victims, the impure and so uh, shamed in the culture, the bottom of the culture food chain, the, the ones who felt cursed, the inconsolable, the helpless. And maybe they had been helpless and inconsolable and in the dark for a long, isolated and only for a long, long time. So they came to Jesus pretty much at the end of their rope, helpless, and not by choice, meaning it wasn't their life goal to be helpless. Um, and coming to Jesus, was it, you know, it wasn't like they read a book uh, that Jesus wrote and they thought it'd be a good idea to attend a lecture or a book signing. <laughs> I mean, right? They needed healing. They needed something or someone to give them a respite from the pain and loneliness and depression and anger and rage. You know, there was they learned there was not a lot they could do to actually change their lives. So I imagine they were open and willing to do whatever he said to do, as long as it might, just might bring an end to their pain, a little, a respite. See, I don't think they're coming because they're considering Judaism or thinking circumcision was a good idea. It's just they if, if this had a shot and they heard the rumors that Jesus can end some pain and maybe give their lives back, get back with their families in their isolation, 
in the wreck their life has been, their humiliation lift a little bit, maybe regain a little social respect and face. But when you look at these folks and think about these folks, think, think desperate, think end of their rope. So um, it might be helpful to think of a Beatitude Venn diagram, you know, the three circles that are overlapping with each other. And there's this nice sweet spot where all three of them overlap. So the poor people who Jesus pursued, right, the blessed are the poor in spirit in the first Beatitude, gathered, embraced, and rescued, uh, and, and those are the ones who came broken and helpless, the tokoi in spirit, unable to pull themselves out of the cesspool of their existence. That's circle number one, the poor in spirit. And then there's the, the inconsolable, the penthine, the ones who are overwhelmed by ongoing sadness. Uh, that's circle number two. And then there are the, the meek. The, this this uh, target of this beatitude, they've been forcefully bent over and unable to stand up for themselves. They're prouse. So some, that's the Venn diagram, three circles. So some overlapped the uh, inconsolable and meek. And sometimes it was the meek and the tokoi. Some were all three at the very horrible inhuman core of the Venn diagram. Think of the people of Ukraine. I mean, as I write this, they're bravely fighting back the invasion of the Russians. But unless there's a miraculous intervention, they're going to be crushed by the violence and destruction. And so, but here's the point. One, you could say, as some commentators do, that these three Beatitudes are targeting the exact same lost and defeated person, and to some degree you, and to some degree me. Again, a spectrum, zero to ten. The Hebrew word, most often translated tokoi and praus, is anoim, people who are helpless, who can't stand up, who can't change, who can't fight back. They can fight back, but what's the point? And who will survive if there's only a, a rescuing intervention or somebody to come alongside of them and lift them up? So Jesus says, for that person who has no other rescuer, no other savior, I've come to be God's loving, fatherly, powerful embrace. I have come for comfort's sake, and you will inherit the earth. And more on that, by the way, in a moment. This is going to be a shock to you, probably. So to be clear, and against a lot of bad historic Christian thought, it's cruel to suggest that any of these three sad, tragic postures mentioned in the first three Beatitudes is meritorious in any way. So Christians, stop thinking that if you were only more tokoi or praus or penthine, then, then God would be moved to bring you relief. He's looking down and go, wow, okay, they, yeah, they're, they're tokoi enough. They're prouse enough. They're pinthine enough. It's, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil that sets that dark trinity as its goal. Uh, I mean, only the world, the flesh, and the devil would see those things as meritorious. Jesus came to rescue humanity, image bearers of God, from the stuckness. And it's good news. But from God's point of view, all of us are, to some degree, tokoi, prouse, or penthine. All creation groans. Jesus has come to rescue broken, lost, dislocated, disconnected humanity and to attach us to God, to enter us into the dance. Uh, by the way, shameless plug for the dance, the-dance.org. This is what it's all about. If you haven't heard the music for a long time, you get a kick out of the dance. So look, we were not made for existing in prouseness, not this human prouseness. Again, I'm going to make a distinction, human and divine prouseness. So, you know, I've heard some people, Christians even, sort of think 
kind of a karma-esque notion that when you see a person or a person who's being humbled and humiliated and, and they're, they're, they're accepting it, they become stoic and in denial and they, and people think, look at them, they're accepting their lot. They're making the best of it. Certainly karma will reward them in their passiveness. They don't say that, but we're, we're thinking that's the case, but no, Jesus is definitely not saying this. You're not made for prousness, humanly speaking. So it's tragic. That's human prousness. It's a, distant, uh, painful ghost of the divine prouse. All right, so let's look at the divine, godly prouseness. This is the good stuff. This is not what Jesus is seeing on the hillside uh, or in much of my life, frankly. First of all, prouse is in God's DNA. God is innately prouse, uh, humble. Look at Matthew 21, 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle. That's the word, prouse, and riding on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a donkey. That's the prediction that Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem humble. Not because he's faking it, not to just fill prophecy. It reflects his inner nature. In Revelation, there's the uh, servant priest amid the lampstands in an early part of Revelation. And it, it, that servant priest is the servant king. He's tending lampstands. Right? He's not sitting on the throne there. He's tending the lampstands, the churches, the king of the new Israel. He is godly prouse by nature. Listen to Paul describe the mind of Christ. And you can just say, this is what prouse is, this mind of Christ in Philippians 2, 3 to 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. And by the way, those people on the hillside, there's no selfish ambition there. It's been beat out of them. Vain conceit, that's been beat the crap out of them. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing by nature. That's what he does. Taking the very nature of a servant. That's what he does. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, to death, even death on a cross. Man, there's a lot of humbling there. There's a lot of prousness there uh, by nature. And this is what he does innately. Uh, Spirit-empowered wives are supposed to have it. And no doubt men, right? Men were supposed to have it as well. But Peter says specifically to women that your prousness is a pure measurement of your value, of your worth as a woman. Your beauty is not from your outer appearance, rather a deep resident prousness. 1 Peter 3, 4. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle is prouse, which is of great worth in God's sight. So prouseness, we're supposed to be prouse. The people on the hillside were beat into prouseness. But Jesus is speaking about a, a greater prouse that we can be. And look, women, we get it. I'm not picking on you. We know you're, it's going to be tough because we know your husbands and boyfriends and fathers. You can't keep, you can't keep this up. The prousness without this alien DNA of God's prousness, godly prousness being shoved down your throat regularly. You, you can't do it on your own. And you just can't pick it up from conferences or reading books or just being a good person in general. A divine prousness is a um, spiritual posture related to kingdom priorities. The godly prouse, by nature, 
motivation, let me say that, sorry, by motivation, are focused upon being with and dependent upon the king, Jesus, and his spirit, their parakaleo, Jesus, and the, and the relationship that Jesus purchased. They want to stay in his arms. There's a prousness to that, in his embrace. And look, in his embrace, you can have all the theological questions you want. I mean, who doesn't? Sure, they disagree on high doctrines. Who doesn't? I regularly disagree with myself on much of theology. As important as it is to get all theology right, and, and we church, we get so distracted by this, it pales in importance to being in Jesus's embrace experientially. If you're a Christian, you're in Jesus's embrace. You can't get away from it. But experiencing it? Man, there's a severe lack of that. Looking into his eyes, seeing how much he loves you, feeling it, being filled to all the fullness of the Father, Ephesians 3, which requires asking the Holy Spirit. The divine prowse of people filled with the Spirit are chill. Right? We can have theological dialogues when, when our cups are full, and it's actually valuable. The divine prowse are chill, knowing that they need him and are accessing him. And that takes the power of the spirit. And that's divine prowseness for humans, is we know we need the spirit. Luther captures this godly prowseness motivation in his image of Christians who get it. And so they kneel down and hold up empty hands like the grass looks up to the clouds to passively receive rain, knowing that that's where you get filled. So, by the way, this godly prouse is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 23, gentleness is proutes, the plural. Godly prouse doesn't come from you. It comes from the Spirit. It comes from being in the presence of Jesus. So what else can we say about divine prouse, right? And I mentioned that Jesus was doing a tip of the hat to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is a great psalm of social justice, but it's got a couple of riddles in it. And we'll walk through those briefly, and you'll, you can do your own study. The context of 37 is that there are the selfish, wicked, evildoers, the ra'ah, who are only out for themselves. They prey on others. They use others. They diminish others. They abuse others. They treat others objectively. They withhold goods and, and security that could bring comfort and well-being. They have wicked schemes that improve their lot at the power and expense of others. They, they can be destructive or just indifferent in an unfair community. So think Russian invasion of Ukraine. Classic, right? Uh, sad, destructive, the evildoers ra'ah using and destroying other people for their own benefit. The normal human response is to fight back, to pursue vengeance or justice, to, to, to send in stinger missiles. By the way, no judgment for me. I get that. Or the normal human response is to, in shame and weakness, just give up, to freeze in terror, to hyper-regulate, to shut down, to give up. So it's a fear cycle, fight, flight, or freeze. The psalmist begins by creating a context that's destructive and frightening. And I'm going to read the first verses and then give voice to the humans being crushed, the, the, the meek, um, the ones who are being shoved down into human prousness. It's a riddle at first, but like I said, but we'll work it out in the later verses. But you're going to see the problem clearly and see the rescue clearly here in Psalm 37, but also on the hillside in Matthew 5. Okay? Psalm 37 of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. All right, here's my comment. Speaking from giving voice to the people who are having the crap beat out of them. What? Fret 
What? Be envious? Be not? Are you kidding me? I can fake it if that's what you want, but how do I not fret? And by the way, fret in the Hebrew means burn, to get hot, to get angry. So someone betrays me, attacks my country, takes my child's life, arrests me wrongly, robs me, treats me with racism, drives tanks into my cities, and what? I'm supposed to, to what, God? Look, I have tried, and I'm only getting more killed. I'm only losing more people around me, and, and I can't do it anymore. It's not in me. My brain is not going to not fret. I don't even know how to not fret. Psalm 37, verse 2, for they, that's the ra'ah, the evil, will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herbs. When? Right? That's this voice. When's that going to happen? I mean, they're not, I see the I see the tanks now. It's not happening. I see the guns in the street. That's not happening. I see my kids being bullied in school. So, all right, good. So that's going to happen eventually. But what's what about now? Is that going to bring back my security for my child? My house is going to bring back my health? Psalm 37, verse 3. Again, listen to this from the perspective of the the person who has been betrayed or lost or treated unjustly. Here we go. Verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Yeah. (laughs) What? Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Good bumper sticker. Verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And here's the voice. Yeah, I, I know that this is the right thing to do. I just can't do it anymore. I can't fake it anymore. And even if I pulled it off, when when do I trust enough? And when do I delight enough that God takes notice and stops this? Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Man, I really? It's just humanly impossible. Fret not yourself. So don't get angry over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Man, I've heard this from the pulpit, so just stop doing that. And I'm look, look, I'm thinking it's not me, it's my brain. It's not all my fault. My fight, my my fear cycle sometimes kicks into fight, sometimes kicks into to flight, sometimes kicks into just shutting down. And there's powerful chemicals aligned with that, right? Refrain from anger. What, what muscle group? Forsake wrath? What muscle group? Fret not yourself. There it is again, because it only tends to evil. Yeah, but you're not telling me how. For the evildoer shall be cut off. There's that promise again. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. There it is. Remember the inherit the land? So those who wait for the Lord will eventually inherit the land. Now, you may be in a hospital. You may have lost the rest of your family and your wealth and your health. But yeah, you're going to get a piece of land over in Israel, is somehow sometimes taught. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. You know, I know a lot of older wicked people. Uh, though you carefully look at his place, he will not be there. Uh, not yet. And here's the verse that no doubt Jesus is referring to, 37, verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth, the land, and delight themselves in abundant peace. Wow. So I'm frustrated just reading this and uh, replaying in my head sermons from the pulpits that have basically said, so stop, stop your brain from being angry. Stop your brain from fretting, from being impatient. Just stop it. (laughs) Right? 
I know that what Psalm 37 is saying is true, that God will eventually step in. And I know that this is what I should do and be. A better man or woman might do it more, but I haven't seen many of them because my brain is angry. I can't stop it. I'm inconsolable. I can't stop it. My faith has been stretched to a breaking point, meaning my faith has been stretched to the breaking point. I'm in the middle of that Beatitude Venn diagram. I am falling short. I'm just not that kind of saint. I don't have that muscle group, right? And and again, this is the verse, the meek, the anawim in the Hebrew, the praus in the Greek will inherit the land. So let's fast forward to verse 21. The wicked borrows but does not pay. There, there's that wicked again. But the righteous is generous and gives. So, so there's another sermon. So you're not being paid by a wicked supervisor, but that's okay. You be generous and give. You just suck it up, man. Well, yeah, that would be a good thing if I wanted to do that. My problem is I don't want to do that. I can't do that. For those, verse 22, blessed by the Lord, shall inherit the land. There is another promise about inheriting the land. What does that mean? And and who are these people? But those cursed by him shall be cut off. Well, that makes sense theologically. So who inherits the land? Earlier, it was the meek, the prouse, uh, the anawim, who inherit the land. Here it is the God Baruch, the God blessed, who inherit the land. We've spent a lot of time with the, the Hebrew ashrei, in the Sermon on the Mount, looking at the blessed be. This is the other Hebrew word for God blessed. This is where God actually intervenes and he does something that changes the people's lives. Uh, what we know about Baruch is it generally is people that don't deserve it. Uh, by the way, nobody totally deserves God blessing other than Jesus. So God blesses unilaterally. These people think Abraham, think Moses, and their lives are changed and they get blessed. By the way, the blessing of uh, God to Abraham, one of the blessings was that he would get the land. So Baruch is what God does for people who may or may not deserve it, and typically those who don't, haven't earned it. That's a better way of saying it. So God unilaterally extends a gift, an inheritance, relationship, a rescue, a family to the undeserved, and whether they are prouse or not inherently, those whom God blesses will inherit the land. Okay, more on that to come. Uh, you know, put put that on the bulletin board and, and keep it up there. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Well, there's another inherit the land promise. Okay, so the meek, then the ones that uh, God looks down and unilaterally just blesses for whatever reasons, and now it's the righteous. All right, who are they? Well, when you see the righteous, don't think uh, these are the person who are doing the Torah first and foremost. Okay, it's not like they are doing right things. Not totally. It's related. Right? First, think the ones who have been ushered into a positive relationship with God, unilaterally by God. It's closer to Baruch. Think of what God did for Abraham or Moses, right? They were made right with God covenantally, but they their character wasn't necessarily changed. They uh, They both messed up. Big time, right? Abraham pimped his wife twice, but he was righteous, meaning his relationship with God was right. And and so they became right with God, and then they were expected, and hopefully God changed them out of that relationship. So Abram wasn't blessed by God because of his righteousness, his obedience. 
His obedience came after it was a result, a fruit of God's prior blessing, Genesis 12. And his righteousness didn't happen until much later, Genesis 15. So it starts off with God making a person righteous by baruching them, by blessing them. So they are linked together. And doesn't it make sense? If two people are right with each other, they don't usually act destructively. So they begin to act and do right things towards each other. They begin to act out of love for each other. And so eventually righteousness implies that they're doing right things, but the motivation is because you're good with the person. Does that make sense? Righteousness in the Hebrew and the Greek is ultimately a relational word that bears right behavior, loving behavior, loving God and loving others. So now what the psalmist says is this, is that those who have a covenantal relationship with God, which which God enacts, which God enables, they're the ones who inherit the land. All right, there's one more. (laughs) Wait for the Lord, keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. So God has to exalt the people to inherit the land. Uh, And then it says, "And, and we'll look upon you when the wicked are cut off. So who gets the land? Those who wait on him, keep his way, and are exalted by him. And you don't need to read into this if you wait enough or if you keep enough of his ways. This describes the person who has been blessed by being brought into a right relationship. And the fruit of that is they're going to trust God more and they're going to tend to depend upon him more and to be more patient and tend to wait. So who inherits the land? First Psalm 37 is the meek. That's, that's the verse that Jesus uh, speaks of the righteous, those who God has unilaterally blessed and rescued, those who wait and depend upon him who keep his way. Are they the same person? Or are they different kinds of people? Kind of a buffet list of who, who are going to be in the land eventually? Here's what I'm going to say is happening. Jesus is imploding this entire list into one, the meek. He's using a narrative device. So when he speaks of meek, he's talking about all of these descriptors of the person who are going to inherit the land. And, you know, you're, you're looking at the people on the hillside and you're going, uh, they don't fit that category, um, except maybe uh, one, one thing, maybe two, right? So they have every reason in the world to not trust God, humanly speaking, to not feel righteous, humanly speaking, who don't feel blessed, humanly speaking, And honestly, they're not waiting on the Lord. They would have stayed in their village. They're coming to get something done, right? And they're not coming to Jesus because they think he's God. So let me suggest this. This person, this man or woman, boy or girl, who will inherit the land, and more on what that means, actually. And again, I think it'll blow your brain. This meek person is the one that God pursues, embraces, and rescues, right? The meek person is in Psalm 37, is the one that God pursues. They didn't, uh, they were not not angry. They were not patient. They were not jealous. They were not, and they were vengeful. They were jealous, right? They they were, uh, they, they weren't ideal here. They didn't get there by obeying the law and being Jesus. And God has to rescue them. And those he rescues, he makes righteous, meaning in relationship with him, he draws them close, parakaleo. He blesses them, though they don't deserve it. They didn't earn it. And then they see something happening. They begin to feel, experience as a result of the salvation, something new, a spiritual divine trust, a desire to follow, a desire to, to love other people and to live in the God way. 
and to begin to feel right with God. This is the miracle. This is the fruit of the spirit gentleness because they can now feel hope and it changes them. Not perfectly. That's for heaven. They still are flawed, but they have hope and maybe a sense of substance and worth and respect, in their, particularly in their relationship with Jesus. This is not the human prowess, which is, and this is what, human prowess is what happens when you get the crap beat out of you. This is divine prowess when you actually get the spirit in you. It's a fruit of the spirit. Not really like anything. I mean, sure, there are moments, but it really is the fingerprint of God. So, uh, see, but for me, it's it's like asking for patience. I don't want patience because I've, I've been there before. It implies that something's going to happen where I'm getting tested. My impatience is being tested because I'm put in trouble or loss or danger. I don't like that. I think it's the same with Prowse. I don't want to be in a position where where uh, godly Prowse should be evident. That would mean that I'm in a human Prowse situation. I've experienced great loss. I can't win. I, I can't get out of it. I'm helpless. I'm getting beat up. My human Prowse would, would, would kick in ranting about injustice and social injustice. That's a, so, I'm not judging. I'm not shaming anybody. Me too. And I would complain about how I'm being treated. Think Psalm 88. I'm, I'm going to cry out to God for justice. Kill my enemies. Come on. Tell me this is not just how I react, right? I'm not alone here. <laughs> um, or maybe I just hyper-regulate. I shut down. I become stoic. I become depressed and in denial. And and maybe hoping that if I'm if I'm hurting so much, passive-aggressive, God will see and and just, you know, feel guilt for not doing anything. No, instead, when the Spirit comes, there's a divine prowseness in his DNA, not mine, that I can ask for, that he would come and empower me with that, that has power, that has hope, that has promise. And in the midst of all of this stuff, I still have hope. I still am aware that God has my back. I'm, I'm actually okay with that. And something, anger and vengeance bubbles out of my brain less. Okay? So God comes, rescues people, human proust people, and they respond by taking refuge, finding hope, running into the embrace of Jesus. And look at the last two verses of Psalm 37. This is instructive. 39. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. There it is. How do, how do you become righteous? How do you become saved? God, for he is their stronghold in time of trouble. They get that. Verse 40, the Lord helps them, them, because he has a relationship with them and delivers them because he has a relationship with them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them uh, because they take refuge in him. Or better, surely they take refuge in him. This is an emphatic key, because. We can say because, but that seems to say God's only doing it because they've taken refuge in him. You don't have to read it that way, and I, I don't think that fits with the psalm. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. Surely they take refuge in him because they have become divine prouse. They've become heavenly meek. All right. Part two, they will inherit the land. Boom. I think this will blow a lot of people's heads out there. I'm going to suggest that inheriting the land is a synecdoche. How'd you do in, in high school English? It's a figure of speech referring to to when a part of something is used to refer to the whole, such as a phrase, all hands on deck means people, not just hands. That would be absurd. 
So it represents all of the promises of God for his children, for his people. It speaks of his covenant. It speaks of heaven. It speaks of the, the, uh, the presence of his love that Jesus pays for. All of the promises of, the, of, of God to his people. To the Jews, God promised really three categories of things. There was the righteous king. David, but eventually Jesus. They were a vast number of people. So Israel, but eventually heaven. And it was land. And, you know, we, we just make it so narrow and think, think he's talking about Israel. Uh, no, he's talking about a place, a kingdom. This is the kingdom that is near in Jesus. This is ultimately heaven and the new earth, whatever that means, way above my pay grade. So God is in a synecdoche, is saying the promise of the land, the promise of the good king or kingdom and generations of people in positive covenantal relationship with me, all of those point to the same relationship, gift, rescue, salvation, all by the hand of God. It's the covenant. It's captured. You are my people and I'm your God. Remember from one of the, uh, the first Beatitudes. So again, the least likely, the unrighteous, the weak, those who have been hammered by evil, and their brain just couldn't trust in God, just couldn't. And remember, the brain can't in those circumstances. Our brains are very, very powerful getting into those fear cycles. And God intervenes. He hovers over the darkness and chaos, and the formlessness and void, Genesis 1, like he did with Abraham, like he did with creation, like he did with enslaved Israel, with Paul, with Matthew, with me, and he promises us the whole thing perfect relationship with him, a new heart. And like I said with the other three of the Venn diagram circles, in their current mindset, they they have to be dragged into that rescue because there's no way their brain's going to allow them to, to trust. Um, it, they're going to have to, there's going to have to be a power that forces the good news down their throat and they can only come kicking and screaming because why would they trust? Nothing has hurt them more than relationships gone bad. And then they're the brain's complaints, the critical inner voice. When? Where were, you, where were you, God, when my family suffered, when I lost, when I got beat up, when I was raped or bullied or treated with racism? All legit human questions. And try not to ask them. You're lying to yourself. You know, God, where were you when my family got COVID, when the tanks invaded my country? These are legit questions asked by half the psalmist. Right? But then something happens, a new heart filled with the Spirit, and for a moment, prousness where you can breathe again, and you get it, that the good stuff is yours. You're not seeing it totally, but there's something, faith happens, another power of the Spirit, that makes you accept it, get it, live out of it. So God's power invades the wounds of the people on the hillside, and in their injustices, their anger and rage, their shame and depression, and lifts them up, rescues them, gives them, no, wait, wait, makes them feel loved and secure in God. No still face. They actually feel God's compassion, feel like he has their backs, and their shoulders drop because they can breathe, right? And they don't have all the answers. They can't explain all the theologies. They can't explain how the Trinity works, right? Or God's sovereignty versus free will. They, they, can't, they can't put all that together. For a minute, they get that God is and has always been for them, and they will be comforted. By the way, think Job and the end of Job, right? So in all of the first three um, Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, because 
but I can't change my lot. Blessed are those who mourn, but I can't stop mourning. Blessed are those who are meek, but I, I can't stop complaining and blaming and, and being angry. I just can't. So in all of those three, and by the way, we're going to see this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It, it might be good after every verse to say, but I can't do it. I won't do it. I haven't done it. I need a rescue. And and you can see how the Sermon on the Mount pops off the, the page. Enviable are the humiliated. They will experience the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Enviable are the humiliated. They will experience the fulfillment of all the promises of God. All right, we're going to stop there, head to the next beatitude next time. I hope this is making some sense and clarifying just how amazing the gospel is. Bigger than we thought. Uh, it has two aspects. One is to recognize it's much better than I can accomplish. And second, Jesus' spirit forced down our throats is actually making us feel these things to be true. Both are true. All right. Look, if you have any comments, bill at gospel-app.com. I, I enjoy dialoguing with people, so go ahead and, and enter in. In the meantime, get this stuff to, to other people, uh, pe- particularly people who have been beat up, who've experienced great loss, who are struggling with depression and suicide ideation, whether it's uh, uh, due to loss or due to chemicals in their brain. Look, the Holy Spirit is so powerful. They should stay with their doctor and stay on their meds. But you know what? Um, there's a there's a new sheriff in town as well. All right. Take heart, child of God. What happens when a writer and former history teacher goes toe-to-toe with his best friend, a nationally touring stand-up comedian? Total carnage, that's what. Two men enter and two men leave because... That's how it works. (laughs) Actually, you get hilarious, real, and insightful conversations about life, history, culture, faith, and everything in between. Join me, comedian Johnny W., and my pal, author, and speaker John Driver for Talk About That at lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.